Hey everybody, today's episode of Shoppernomics is brought to you by Decision Breakers, experts in behavior-based shopper strategy, insights, and activation. Visit www.decisionbreakers.com to learn more and see how they can help you win the war in store. Welcome to Shoppernomics the podcast for marketing and insight professionals who want to stay current on the latest understanding of consumer behavior and decision-making. My name is Phil McGee, and today I'm speaking with Robert Jones, Associate Professor and Department Chair of Hospitality and Retail Management in the College of Human Sciences at Texas Tech University, and also President of the American Collegiate Retail Association. In addition to his academic pursuits, Roberts consulted for retailers and manufacturers such as 7-Eleven, Walmart, Walgreens, Brookshires, Miller Coors, and many others. He has a very active research agenda focused on the shopper and the shopping experience, and his work has been published in journals such as the Journal of Retail and Consumer Services, the International Journal of Retail and Distribution Management, and the International Review of Retail, Distribution, and Consumer Research. Today, we'll be discussing a paper titled Exploring the Impact of Shopper Ethnicity Through the Path to Purchase Framework, where Robert and his colleagues examined key path to purchase elements, including motivation, role, and subjective norms, and their impact among three major ethnic groups, African Americans, Caucasians, and Hispanics, and found significant differences in how these populations make purchase decisions. And I really like this because for years, I've been asked to describe how purchase decisions by these groups differ for the products my former companies marketed, but never had a good explanation why these differences occurred, at least not in the way that Robert does here. But before we begin, Robert, I just wanted to welcome you to Shoppernomics. It's great to be here, and uh, thank you for having me today. Our pleasure. And, and Robert, so I gave a quick summary of your credentials up front, but maybe you can build upon my introduction and tell us a little bit more about yourself. Sure. Yeah, I had a very active career in uh, retailing, nearly 30 years, and uh, covered pretty well every part of retailing you can imagine, and uh, finished my career uh, as an executive in television retailing, which is uh, is one of the most uh, physically aggressive places at retail you can possibly be. They know the store never closes. Um, And then I moved on into academia uh, a uh, little over six years ago. Uh, because I was uh, had a lot of questions after you know nearly 30 years in retail, I was still being told things that you know my experience with with the shopper just didn't add up. So uh, getting into academia helped me sort of explore some of those questions that I had and and help find some answers for those things, and uh, also to give students the opportunity to uh, enjoy a college career that really will change their. Um, career trajectories as they move out from there, go into their first jobs and move on. So um, that's sort of a, a quick and dirty on how that goes. That's, uh, that's terrific and rare to find people who have uh, you know, both the academia and the practitioner sides and uh, in, in a nice healthy balance. That's terrific. Yeah, I've really, uh, uh, I've really been um, excited to really engage with students and really have them um, uh, you know, pepper me with questions about what it's really like on the outside world. Although, mm. you know, it's, it, being out of it now for uh, uh, 
the amount of time that I've been away, I can tell you that uh, current practitioners are are gaining in their credibility relative to mine. So uh, <laughs> I, uh, it'll only be a short time before they assume that it's time to put me out to pasture. <laughs> well, uh, let, let's hope you get a career out of that first. Yeah, okay, we'll, so, we'll work hard. so this was a very interesting paper and I think highly relevant uh, to our listeners because as practitioners, we're all interested in and accountable for how ethnic consumers make decisions so we can be inclusive in our marketing and selling efforts. So, um, so let's start by first asking, what inspired you to take on this topic? So that's a, that's a really great question. Um, you know, if we take a look at the shopper, you know, clearly from a, a non-academic perspective, you know, the practitioners out there in the field, marketing firms, especially CPG firms, they've been really focused on the shopper really for quite a long time. But on the academic side of the fence, the, the literature that explores the top, uh, topic of the shopper is really very limited, and it's really at the very beginning of its exploration. And so for me, it was a really exciting happenstance that uh, I got to uh, very early in my uh, career in academia was introduced to the idea and the shopper from an academic perspective is just a really interesting thing to explore because everybody has always been focused on the consumer. Right. And the shopper gives you a whole new perspective in investigating um, behavior and the way that that uh, shopper engages with the marketplace. So, um, we know that there are some similarities, but clearly there are differences between the consumer and the shopper. So one of the things I wanted to explore was, you know, if, if I look at the consumer literature, um, one of the things you see very early on is that they started to explore um, a lot of different demographic variable, variables, things like gender and age and ethnicity. And clearly, uh, as the U.S. is becoming more culturally diverse, it just seems that perhaps exploring that uh, a cultural perspective as it relates to the shopper uh, might be more relevant and, and beneficial to what, what marketers are facing today. Yeah, well, well first, I, I agree with you on the, that there is a difference between consumer understanding and shopper understanding. Those are two very different things, um, although the consumer is sometimes the shopper and vice versa. Um, one is, at least the way I've thought about it, one is more about kind of the perceptions um, and, and the other is more about the behaviors. I've done both Consumer Insights and Shopper Insights, and by far, um, I found Shopper Insights to be just much more fascinating and, quite frankly, fun. Um, but before we get into the details of the study, I wanted to ask an about an underlying assumption that I thought was very interesting and served as the premise of your hypotheses, because I want to make sure I've got this right. And that is, generally speaking, African-American shoppers, and, and we'll touch on Hispanic shoppers in a second, but African-American shoppers are motivated to demonstrate cultural uniqueness in their purchase decisions. In other words, to approach shopping in a way that does not conform to mainstream cultural norms, or said differently, don't, don't do what white people might do while Hispanic shoppers are motivated to approach shopping in a way that shows cultural conformity with choices that help them feel that they fit in. So the first, did I get that right? And, and if so, is this an assumption made on your part or is this based on existing literature? So uh, to answer your first question, yes, you did, absolutely. That is, that's right on the money. And second, no, this isn't a, an assumption. Again, if we go back to the consumer literature, 
um, there's a lot of um, uh, existing uh, uh, literature that really broadly explores this this concept. So, you know, that, that base understanding from a consumer perspective is well established in the literature from a consumer perspective. It, it has, however, not been explored from a shopper perspective. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so can you talk, um, again, at a high level, we'll get deeper in a minute, but can you talk at a high level about these cultural influences and why they play such a big role for these shoppers? You know, what we're really talking about here from, from the perspective of the way the article was, was looked and the way the research was, was uh, conducted is that we're talking about acculturation, really. Mm-hmm. So how individuals are making uh, determinations about whether or not they wish to acculturate to a new or, or different society. Um, and essentially, if you achieve fully acculturation, right, you've assimilated completely into, uh, into the society and, and virtually your entire previous cultural identity disappears. Hmm. So uh, as we discuss all of these topics um, uh, related to these various ethnicities, um, you know, what, what is important to keep in mind is that we're talking about um, individuals in, in this research who are strong in their beliefs uh, uh, strong enough that they identify at one end of the spectrum or the other that we can identify them through the research as being someone who is who is really trying to define themselves separately from uh, mainstream culture or really trying to identify with that mainstream culture. So, mm-hmm. as the as the article addresses um, uh, African Americans or Hispanics or Caucasians, it's from that perspective. So. It's not a sweeping generalization that says all African Americans or all Hispanics or all Caucasians behave this way. Right. It's there are members of each of these uh, separate groups that have this orientation one way or the other. Got it. Okay. So if I'm a marketer or consumer insights professional, um, you, you haven't done all my work. In other words, <laughs> I still have work to do in terms of understanding uh, segments within these ethnic groups. Right. So uh, in particular, if we take a look at that African-American shopper where you started, mm-hmm. um, who, and, and in particular the one that uses purchases um, as a tool, right, yeah. to, to maintain their cultural identity, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're essentially following a very long tradition um, that African Americans have had in the U.S. Um, uh, in being able to maintain that African American identity in the face of a very dominant Caucasian culture. Yes, um, and they've had a, to find a way to communicate one to another, often non-verbally, um, this cohesion to this African American culture. And uh, one of the ways that you're able to do that is with those external purchases, things that people can see. Um, and, and as African-Americans throughout history, they have been able uh, to uh, generate um, these, these symbols of their purchases that help identify where they are in the African-American culture. Um, clearly, they use um, different purchases to establish uh, um, where they are within the African-American society, so, so you know, wealth and power and stature. Um, as well as their affinity for uh, maintaining that separate identity unique from the dominant uh, Caucasian culture. Mm. And that's a, that's a very specific African-American attribute for, um, you know, a certain population uh, that's out there. Now, that's very different than the Hispanic shopper 
who um, oftentimes made the personal decision to come here to the United States. Having made that choice, you know, one of their goals is to fit in, to, to be considered part of that um, broader population, the more dominant population here from a cultural perspective, uh, specifically related to consumers, uh, which is Caucasian. So that shopper, being able to reflect that they understand the cultural majority by demonstrating um, the, through their purchases that they understand how the culture works, um, helps them demonstrate that they are successful in their new adopted country. So, um, you know, this strategy is great. And again, I'm not going to do all the work for the marketers because mm -hmm. that may be great for a first generation or for a Hispanic um, shopper who is has maybe just arrived. But we very much see that um, when we get to second and third generations that there's there's an interest in trying to reconnect with their fami familial culture. So right. reaching back to wherever they uh, wherever they may have um, originally come from. So, um, you know, even though we see some of these trends in these different populations, they may not be stable over time. They may not be stable by generation. And particularly when you look at the Hispanic population, you know, it's not monolithic. There's a lot of regions around the globe that a Hispanic customer can come from. And, you know, their cultural viewpoint will be different depending on what that uh, country of origin um, culturally um, uh, they brought with them. Absolutely. And, and that's what makes this uh, topic so complicated, especially with respect to Hispanics, is that you've got multiple countries of origin. Um, you've got language nuances. Um, you've got, you know, preferential nuances. Um, and you've got different levels of acculturation. I'm curious about your sample, did, did you do kind of a representative sample of Hispanics and your findings are kind of a representative finding from that cross mix of, of Hispanics as a, as a population? So we, we, we did ask the question, um, you know, this was, this was a, uh, an online survey methodology. So the, the, uh, one of the things that we find is even though we asked the question to find out generationally and country of origin, um, where the Hispanic shopper uh, might have an, an affinity one way or the other. Um, the difficulty is that uh, when you get to um, any sort of ethnic population in an online survey environment, you find out that they're, they're wildly underrepresented in, mm -hmm. in comparison to a Caucasian right. population. So um, it took a very long time to gather the sample. Mm -hmm. And uh, what we find is that, you know, what you, you, you are, uh, we're somewhat misrepresented in the sample towards the more acculturated and the more affluent in both the African-American and Caucasian population, mm -hmm. uh, just by virtue of the way the sample was gathered. Um, so we really would have to try uh, an entirely different methodology um, if we really want to do another deep dive and go down and really try to do segments against country of origin and generation. Right. Oh, interesting. So, but you didn't, you didn't, you know, go out of your way to filter or exclude any subsegments. You, you, you know, you took a broad stroke approach to to your sample composition. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Terrific. So, you know, another thing I liked about your paper is that um, it you had to really look at this um, in a lot of different ways. You know, and another thing that's 
you know, fun and interesting and challenging about Shopper Insights is that nothing is simple. So in your paper, beyond ethnicity, you also talked about a shopper's role, um, be it a mother, a wife, a husband, a friend, or something else, and that shoppers' attitudes about their current purchases are shaped by either positive or negative social responses to their past purchases they made when shopping for similar occasions. So by way of example, if I'm, if I'm buying snacks for my daughter's sleepover, uh, what, I, what I'll buy will be influenced by how purchases for past sleepovers were received uh, by my daughter and her friends. And if it's really important to my daughter that I get something that makes all of her friends happy, then the risk associated with my purchase is greater. Um, did I get that right? Absolutely. Okay, so, so, so now then, how do role and ethnicity and cultural uh, influences all kind of interact to influence that purchase decision? Okay, so, so from the perspective of the, of the um, paper and the way the research was drawn, so ethnicity for us is really used as a tool to identify a unique cultural perspective that someone would be bringing to the marketplace. So um, given that we're talking about shoppers, so they are approaching a, uh, a need, they've got some sort of shopping need that is, that is for a specific occasion. Um, there's an individual that's a tie to that occasion, and there's a very specific time frame that that um, shopping need must be fulfilled by. Then our shopper has to assume some sort of role based on what that occasion and what that need was. And that role, regardless of, of this particular research or any shopper, um, helps them frame what acceptable solutions um, might be given that particular shopper need. Hmm. And that acceptable solution is framed by the cultural perspective that they're approaching the marketplace from. Okay. So that's sort of how the pieces all sort of fit together. So, you know, as another example, we could have looked at this very same thing, and instead of uh, looking at it from a cultural perspective, we could have looked at it from the demographics of, of, of income, right? So if, if you had very little uh, uh, way uh, by, by means to accomplish your purchase goal, um, right in the case of our study, we were looking at salty snacks, mm -hmm. right? Then, then a splurge for your daughter, in your case, might have been to purchase a branded product versus a store brand. Right. However, if you had access to means, right, you might step it up and you might purchase, you know, artisanal snacks or hand-cut and fried in truffle oil potato chips, <laughs> right? So, you know, you might have come up with some sort of snack purchase for your daughter. Um, if you were really trying to satisfy her friends, um, right, it might have to be some sort of non-fat or unbranded, non-GMO, local, any number of options that would really be uh, trying to satisfy something that was um, going to satisfy your daughter. And, and the reason the risk was kicked up is because your daughter is someone who's important to you. So right. you want to do a good job trying to satisfy her. So um, unfortunately for people like us, you know, trying to keep up with, with uh, our children or, or the younger demographic, you know, trends change very quickly. And it can be difficult to stay on top of what will satisfy that consumer. Um, so Sometimes for the shopper, what's unfortunate is, as you mentioned, it was your prior experiences with how well you did in purchasing that snack for your daughter 
as those trends change, that experience may be of little to no value of you anymore. So right. you know, for, the, for the shopper, that's the, that's the downside, not always being the ultimate consumer. They lack the opportunity of that consumption and reflection process. So outcomes really become difficult to um, define clearly, which is another element that just, uh, again, continues to raise the risk level for the shopper mm. and being able to make a good decision. Yeah, I really like how you considered and included that. I think the, the, the whole topic of a shopper's role within, with respect to the occasion is, can be its own paper, um, could, could be its own course at a university. I mean, there, there's so much uh, intricacy there with, with you know, what decisions do they feel are theirs to make versus what decisions um, you know, are, they're not entitled to make. Uh, you know, give, given that role um, relative to the occasion, but also relative to the ultimate, ultimate end user. Um, it's, right. it's, it's a really interesting topic. Um, and by the way, one of my fondest memories of, um, of being a, a dad was when my daughter had a sleepover. I think she was in sixth grade and it was one o'clock in the morning and they were all hungry and I served them chicken noodle soup. And they just got such a, a kick out of eating chicken noodle soup at one o'clock in the morning. It was literally the talk of the school the next day. <laughs> so, so it is Great. important what snacks you chose. And, um, and, and, you know, I instinctively knew that. Um, I didn't know I was going to get that reaction. But uh, nonetheless, you know, future sleepovers, I always had chicken noodle soup on hand. Um, okay, so you also spoke about motivation and purchase intention. And so where and how do these variables fit in? So for, from a shopper's perspective, you know, motivation is a, it's just an essential element, mm -hmm. right? To the, you know, if we take a look at the occasion that the shopper is, is making this purchase for and, and how important that occasion is to the shopper, you know, that can be a driving force in how motivated you are to complete that purchase task that, that you've been assigned. So, you know, if you've ever been invited to a party that requires that, that you bring a gift or you purchase some contribution to the event and you're not excited about the event, you know, how likely is it you procrastinate to the very end and put that purchase off as long as humanly possible? Right. Because it's, it's something you have zero motivation or interest in trying to, to complete. And your purchase intention, you know, that's at the end of the chain past this motivation. So, you know, if there you're not going to get all the way to purchase if you can at least get to the place past motivation that you intend to complete that purchase. So, um, you know, sometimes that, that lack of any interest in the event um, can leave you, you know, unmotivated to shop. Um, and then once you consider the fact that you're going to have to shop for it, you know, it's, it's all you can do to barely complete the purchase. Um, you know, and sometimes you might have gotten all the way through the process and think, well, this is an interesting event. And uh, so I really do want to go ahead and make the purchase. But, you know, so I, I, motivation is with me, mm -hmm. but I have a lack of knowledge as a shopper with what it is I need to be purchasing. And that lack of knowledge can result in you not wanting to pull the purchase trigger because you don't want to make the wrong decision. Mm. Right. And so is that as the occasion gains in importance as well as the individual involved in the occasion, you know, that's another element of where risk comes into the decision because you don't want to show up at this thing and deliver what was obviously a bad choice. So, um, 
you know, if I, I think from my perspective, if I take a look at the, at the rise and how, how many gift cards are bought in the United States every year, it's, it's partially mm-hmm. due to the fact that, that shoppers don't know what to purchase. What is the good decision to make here? So mm-hmm. I'll abdicate my decision-making authority to um, let the ultimate consumer go back out and make that purchase decision for me. I'll give you the means to make it, but, but I'm not going to be the one to make the choice for you. Yeah. Um, it's what makes occasion insights so important. Um, you know, I talk about it as understanding the consumer in the store and the shopper out of the store. And, um, and, and, and as a marketer, talking about your products in store to the extent that you can so that those who are making, you know, the ultimate purchase decision understand what is going to do the job you know, the best relative to other choices uh, for meeting the needs of the occasion. And it's really interesting to know how many uh, categories are shopped by who I call proxy shoppers or or those that they buy the product for others, but they don't necessarily use it themselves or they may not be the exclusive users of it. And so for them, the knowledge is not always there and, and so giving them that knowledge or at least just a few critical cues on the packaging or, or other communication mediums at shelf uh, are so important to help them make the right choice. Um, so, so it reduces risk for them. It's not just you know, the right thing to do for a marketer. It's the right thing to do for the consumer. They do have that risk that you mentioned, and you're helping them uh, minimize that risk. Um, but you're also making sure that people understand what job you do uh, are, are, are designed to, to do, um, and, 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 and just making sure that you're helping, helping bridge that gap between, you know, what I stand for and, and the occasion. So, so that was neat. I like the way how you, you fit those in. Okay. So, so given all that we just said, and I know you kind of hit on it, um, to some extent, but what, how would you describe what you learned about different ethnic groups and how they shop? So, um, uh, a couple of things, um, you know, I think one of the things that, um, that we, uh, learned out of our, uh, study is that, um, you know, that I, I think we, we think that, um, you know, ethnicity is one aspect that really fundamentally alters, uh, one shopper's, um, decision-making process versus another. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the essential elements they came out of the study for us is, indeed, there are things culturally that cause shoppers to behave in different in, uh, different ways, one from another. Mm-hmm. But it's to me, what's most interesting that comes out of that is there's a lot of places where they are similar. So I think from a marketer's perspective, one of the big opportunities we have is that that uh, with very very light. Uh, work, it's, it's, you're able to craft a message that is um, positive and will be well accepted um, by a shopper um, across a variety of different um, ethnicities if you're willing to take the time, as you said, to try to provide the information that helps them understand what's the better decision to make when they're staring at the uh, products in an aisle mm-hmm. and trying to decide what, what is the choice I need to make. And um, you know, the whole idea that all shoppers are looking to minimize their risk, regardless of, of their cultural perspective, I think is an important thing to mm-hmm. take away. 
Mm. Very interesting. Yeah. So, so risk, risk is, uh, it's something that our, our shoppers face and risk is something that marketers can help, uh, you know, alleviate or minimize. Yeah. Really interesting. Um, and, and obviously reading your paper will help kind of fill in the gaps on, on, you know, again, what creates the risk and, and how to resolve that. Um, and we'll get into some of the implications of that in just a second. First, I'd have a couple of questions on your methodology, which, um, which I think you know may be helpful for for all of us in in thinking about your findings. Your research used the salty snacks category to understand these differences. I'm, I'm curious why you chose that category instead of I don't know hair care, appliances, jewelry, or, or something else. So uh, that's a great question. And um, when we were originally um, determining how to put the study together, one of the things that was really important for us was. Um, to really find a product um, that that we could get, we thought uh, strong results from from the population we were we were um, investigating. Mm-hmm. So salty snacks, if we look at the uh, uh, academic research, has been demonstrated uh, to really have a very high brand loyalty and have a high degree of consistency in purchase. So mm-hmm. uh, if we asked shoppers about that category of product, we're relatively sure that they'd have high knowledge and skill level uh, relative to that particular category. Okay. If I looked at things like appliances or jewelry that are purchased less frequently, then they might not have the same level of involvement and knowledge and um, high repeat purchase that somebody has in, in salty snacks. And Hair care, which you asked in particular, which is one of the things we investigated, yeah. we find out that's something that, that that shopper tends to change over time. So um, loyalty tends to be relatively low when it comes to hair care products. So um, the only other one that really sort of jumped up in our uh, priority list of things that we could have considered is another big high-involvement product, which would be toilet paper. Hmm. It has a lot of similar qualities to salty snacks from a, uh, the shopper perspective. Um, and that could have been a, a suitable... Uh, substitute for us to use, but you know, salty snacks sound a little more fun to investigate than toilet paper. <laughs> that is true, but I wonder. That's an interesting um, other category example, because kind of going back to the the underlying premise uh, that we originally talked about, where where uh, African Americans are looking for cultural uniqueness and Hispanics are looking for cultural conformity, it would seem that. Um, the, the, the category that you use to explore those would have to be one where there are self-expressive benefits, right? Where there's, um, you know, there's, there's this conspicuous nature of it where people uh, expect that others will evaluate them based on their choices, which is, um, you know, highly likely, it would seem, with respect to salty snacks and probably, I don't know, maybe not at all uh, with toilet paper. Not sure about that. Um, but, uh, thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I think, I think you're right. That's ultimately why we went with salty snacks. Is yeah. that it's, it's a much demonstrable product. Yes. And, and, and so I'm, I'm sure you'd feel comfortable generalizing those findings to other, uh, categories that share those same dynamics. Um, uh, and, and, but I wonder like, would you, how comfortable would you feel kind of projecting that to categories that maybe don't share those characteristics? Yeah, and I th- I think I think that's that's one of the areas where I think we would we would really have a lot of concern in generalizing. Mm-hmm. Um, once you move beyond those similar type of products, so you know, consider an item like a 
um, an engagement ring. Uh, you know, that might be a, a, a single purchase in a lifetime. Right. Um, so, you know, given the limited amount of experience that person, person uh, that shopper might have with that particular category and the, and the general lack of knowledge that exists when it comes to jewelry, period, mm. you know, we, it'd be hard to tell what, what levers in the path to purchase framework that shopper might, might lean on harder than we might anticipate from somebody making a salty snack purchase. So, you know, I think one of the key things for us to really uh, look into in the very near future are, are different, more difficult categories to examine, things like cars and homes and, you know, things that are not a relatively common purchase that the shopper may or may not have access to um, really good information and good experience when they're making those types of decisions. Yeah, so, you know, I hadn't thought about this um, as I read your paper or, or, you know, kind of until this point in our conversation, but but your engagement ring example is a really interesting one. Um, other than, you know, the, the product itself, so let's, you know, in a diamond, there's the clarity um, and pureness of the diamond. But I wonder if, if going for cultural conformity, you know, in, in our culture, I think it's what, two months salary? Um, uh, versus cultural uniqueness, um, you know, maybe not wanting to conform to that kind of general rule of thumb or heuristic, um, may determine uh, less about the product and more about someone's, you know, willingness to spend a lot or not on a product. Right, and I think that's one of the things that you you start seeing, right? So, so you know, generally. Uh, if you stick with the jewelry example, generally jewelry is not branded versus, um, you know, CPG products, which are. Right. Uh, so, you know, you're associating your purchase more with the retailer than you are with a brand. Yeah. Uh, so there's, you know, that that's the whole part about jewelry that makes things opaque. We, you know, we can talk about, um, you know, the, the cut and the clarity and the, the color and all of those sorts of things um, that go with a, a diamond, but but, you know, those are just words. People really don't know what underlie those things. So right. jewelry is <laughs> actually the federal government maintains a website just to help people understand <laughs> how, how fraught the purchase of making jewelry is. Yeah. Um, but it's a um, yeah, that's a very interesting dynamic in that particular case, because the, the risk is enormous. The level of knowledge is relatively low and um, the, the rate of purchase is, is also relatively low. So. You know that's a very different environment to be making a purchase in, and it's it's a uh, it's one that I think when we start looking at it from a cultural perspective has lots of implications. Yeah, and and I think you know as a marketer, I think you need to understand for your uh, product and category what cultural uniqueness or conformity, uh, you know how that's how that can play out. Um, is it about how much I'm willing to pay? Is it about what brand am I willing to you know be seen consuming? Is it about the size of the of the container um, or package? Is it about the store that I'm buying it from? Um, I remember having a conversation a few years ago with somebody who is, I think, 18 years old at the time, and she said, "It matters what brand of clothing you buy, but it also matters at what store I bought that brand." Um, so you know, there there are a lot of things that that might be. Um, important with respect to um, a, a shopper determining cultural fit or not. And, uh, and as a marketer and, and through your research, I think it's understand to really pinpoint which those things are in order to be able to leverage this. Correct. Yeah. Correct. 
So another thing about the methodology I just wanted to quickly touch on was you chose the quick trip as the context for your scenarios. Uh, I'm curious why you chose this particular trip type. Maybe it was consistent with the category. Um, and again, how generalizable you feel this trip type is. So we, we chose it because uh, being an experimental design, we try to control for as many out, outside factors as humanly possible. And, and quick trip sort of narrows down the focus of what you're going to do. And it, it also adds a sense of urgency to the person who's uh, engaged in the survey. Mm -hmm. survey. So by removing, you know, the, the element of time, it's something that has to be done um, uh, quickly. It sort of helped the, uh, our participants uh, not ruminate a whole lot on what their choices might be. It's sort of a, you know, here's the task. I've got to go complete it. Okay. Um, so that's really why we um, uh, chose that particular um, type. And, it's, and, and as you mentioned, you know, that's a pretty, you know, uh, common type of purchase you would make with salty snacks. So it fit in with the, with the, uh, the type of uh, product we were having the, the uh, participants purchase. Yeah. Do you think the, um, so we talked about how projectable the, the category might be. Um, how projectable do you think the, the trip, the, the findings, you know, given the trip type might be? In other words, you know, on a stock up trip, how might this change? Um, as I kind of think back to my daughter's chicken noodle soup example, um, you know, I don't, I don't buy, can soup on quick trips. I buy them on stock up trips, and and yet, you know that effect was, uh, uh, you know, was certainly playing out on, on a large trip um, in in that particular instance. Um, what are your thoughts on projectability of trip type? So, so um, again, my apologies to my uh, uh, marketing friends out there. <laughs> uh, if we talk about stock up trips, unfortunately, you know, those are just. They're, you know, they are just one giant conundrum for the, the mm -hmm. shopper, right? So, you know, we gave in our particular case, there's a single occasion, a single role, a single category that they're dealing with, a fixed time that it's got to be completed. And, you know, we try to control all those variables. Right. You move to a stock up and now I've got multiple occasions. There's multiple roles. There's a variety of timelines. Could be any number of categories that are going to be involved in that purchase. You know, and that's a, all of those are a balancing act for the shopper. So, right. Uh, we might not have seen the definitive outcomes that we saw. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't think it would change the outcomes necessarily, but they wouldn't have been as clear. Got it. Um, it's very difficult to tell in that type of environment, you know, where is the shopper choosing to sub-optimize their purchase because they're compensating for something else and trying to balance the various and, and often competing needs they've got to, got to handle in a stock-up shopping trip. Yeah, I, and I appreciate you giving me a point of view on that. I, I know it's unfair to ask you to speculate because that's not what you studied, but, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have your opinion. I appreciate that. Um, I'm also happy that you have been a practitioner um, at one point in your career because I'm curious to know um, on the topic of, you know, so what do we do with what you learned? Uh, knowing what you now know, if you were a product manager um, or a retailer for that matter, and you wanted to create communications or um, a shopping experience that caters to these differences, what what types of things might you do? Well, you know, that's, that's a really great question. And I think it's, it's an exciting part of about being where we are today. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're at a place now where we've got the ability to really micro-message shoppers um, even within the retail environment, whether it's brick and mortar or online or, or what the environment is. Right. Um, so um, I think we've got the ability to investigate the shopper, really understand who our shopper is and deliver messages that are targeted to their particular needs, which, which has not been really as possible as, as it is today. Mm -hmm. 
Furthermore, we're in a great place where a lot of shoppers are really much more interested in the experience to them as opposed to the message. So we have whole new ways that we can communicate to that that shopper in the shopping environment um, to really provide them non-contradictory messages that, that help a variety of different uh, shopper profiles um, be successful in making their, their purchases and, and accomplishing their goals. So you know, shoppers are highly goal-driven, and they've got time frames that things have to be done in. So, you know, our ability to provide them targeted information that helps them achieve their goals is, is something that is, you know, today uh, unbelievably exciting to, to work with. Now, marketers with large budgets have the uh, ability to message to uh, specific audiences, and, and do so in very targeted and, and different ways, um, you know, based on the mediums uh, or geographies or, or store types, what have you that they're using or, you know, websites, what have you. Um, I'm curious, it, do you think that there are a, there's a single message or experience you can use to appeal to all three consumer groups? Or do you really need to pick one or two of these groups and direct your messaging or experience specifically to them? In other words, is, is, are there silver bullet approaches um, to meeting both perspectives with a single message, or, or is it a, really about dividing and conquering? Um, I, uh, I very much believe that, that your point about dividing and conquering is, is, is more what is appropriate today. I, I think the shopper feels that they are owed an individualized message and experience. Yeah. Um, so I think if you take a look at, at, say, department stores as an example, if we take a look at a Macy's, a JCPenney, Sears, Kmart, all of them are all in trouble, and their inability to to um, provide an individualized experience is really their Achilles heel. Yeah. You know, I can take by that same token, look at a Nordstrom's, which utilizes a very similar footprint, but engages the shopper in a, in a variety of different experiences and provides services, which helps make the shopper make decisions uh, faster and more effectively. So um, I can look at hospitality firms like Marriott that do the same thing by providing a multitude of different housing opportunities um, under their single umbrella to provide the guests the experience they're looking for. So uh, no, I don't think a silver bullet is the way to go. I think you really need to understand who your shopper is and deliver um, the experience and the messaging that they're looking for. Yeah, I agree. I've, I've always thought that good strategy is knowing where and when to say, I'm not going to pursue this. Um, and, and, you know, for marketers, it's a kiss of death trying to be all things to all people. Um, you really have to be willing to uh, forego opportunities in order to really leverage your greatest opportunity. Um, you know, be clear on who your target is, be clear on what you stand for to your target, and then hone a, a message that really just nails that um, versus versus using kind of you know general um, activations that that try to kind of cast a wide net and capture everyone. Those things are, are those that tend to fail. Right, um, exactly. I, I thought it interesting when you pointed out that this study not only made the contributions we just spoke about. But it also validated the Path to Purchase framework by Jones and Runyon, published back in 2016. Um, I'm curious, was, was validating that framework important to you when doing the study or, or just something interesting to point out? Uh, no, actually, it was, uh, uh, it was a really important thing for us to point out. Hmm. 
as I as I mentioned earlier, you know the uh, the marketing practitioners are way ahead of academia in the shopper front, and one of the things that is important for uh, from an academic perspective is the ability for us to work in a uh, methodical manner mm-hmm. uh, to be able to test things in um, uh, smaller bite-sized pieces so we can really understand the processes that are at work um, and the ability to demonstrate that those processes can be replicated over time and in different environments. So um, what was really important was for us to provide this environment, provide different variables, um, such as the cultural perspective, and say that, you know, I can put those various uh, elements into the same framework and the same rules that we first posited in that first paper still apply mm. in this second paper. So going forward, what the, what the framework is, is beginning to demonstrate is this is a powerful tool to help uh, understand how to segment a population on a variety of different elements as you move through the, you know, the framework is stable, but how things work within the framework um, changes. So, you know, we, we know now from things as, as we look through the framework that over the path to purchase, um, at some point, different parts of the, the path, be, uh, elements of the path become important. You know, initially it could be product focused, right. then it moves to retailer focused, then it rolls back to product and brand po- uh, focused, and ultimately it rolls back to the retailer. So, you know, we see that ebb and flow of how the shopper is making their decisions through the framework, um, which is really beneficial from that academic standpoint. It, it allows us to be able to put the shopper in a testable environment so that we can really um, generate outcomes that can be replicated and are stable. And we can say with some certainty um, that we see the shopper behaving in this manner. Excellent. And, and you've done a, just a terrific job summarizing the key points from the study, um, as well as the background and, and details about the, the chosen methodology. Uh, I'm curious, is, is there anything else that you learned from this work that we didn't talk about but should have? Um, you know, I, I think one of the things uh, that we could take a look at is that, um, that you know, that cultural orientation um, really is, um, highlights how shoppers approach the, the path to purchase in, in maybe slightly different ways, uh, and that, that that point of view has them weigh on different elements. Um, uh, as opposed to, you know, from one cultural perspective to another. Um, so I think that's a very important point to note, that, that, that we can see that influence and in how the person moves through the path, mm-hmm. um, the ultimate outcome, uh, and how they make their decisions, you know, whether it's going to be to, to separate themselves or to make themselves fit in, uh, is interesting. Um, but I think it's, um, it helped us really identify that from a, uh, a process standpoint, regardless of that cultural perspective, the shoppers all follow this same path. Mm. So, you know, we used um, this cultural point of view as an essential element of this particular study. Um, we could also look at a whole variety of, of um, different attributes that uh, we could have explored and um, uh, to see how the shopper ends up behaving um, and how those traits may influence 
the way as a marketer I, I could do a better job of speaking to that shopper. So, you know, we used in this particular, uh, particular case a cultural orientation, but it could be age or gender or sure. income or sexual orientation, employment, geography. I mean, there's a million uh, different areas that could all influence uh, in small ways the way that the shopper moves through the path. So uh, I think the great thing is we now understand that shoppers, with respect to the elements we looked at in this particular study, you know, they all leverage the path the same way. Um, they follow the same route. They just take that cultural perspective to steer the outcome slightly different from, from one group to the other. So all that to say, you've got a long list of topics that are available to explore. Job security. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, no, but that's great and, and great for those of us who, who want to understand shopper behaviors um, you know, to the, to the levels that we can. So, so thanks to you and, and, and your colleagues for, for helping, uh, tackle, you know, one more dimension of this. Um, so your, your paper titled exploring the impact of shopper ethnicity through the path to purchase framework, uh, Robert, if people want to learn more about you and, and, and how ethnicity affects shopper behavior or maybe other topics you're working on, what's the best way for them to reach you? They can, uh, look me up on LinkedIn. You can find me there. Uh, you can also go to robertpauljones.com, and if you pull up Texas Tech University, you'll you'll find me in the directory under uh, robert.p.jones at ttu.edu, and uh, I'm available at any one of those places and happy to uh, discuss uh, this further with anybody. Terrific. Well, thank you, Robert. Uh, it's been really great speaking with you, and thanks for giving us the inside story of your work on shopper ethnicity. Great. Philip, thank you so much. You're quite welcome. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I'd like to give a special thanks to Decision Breakers for making today's episode possible. We'll see you next time on Shoppernomics.